0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Mark Pringle, standing in for Barney Hoskins, his very big shoes to fill, with my colleagues Jasper Mirison, Bowie, hello, Mark, and <laughs> and Martin Collier. Hi, hey, Mark. Um, today we're going to be talking, we've got audio of Lindsay Buckingham being interviewed in 2011. Buena Vista Social Club, 25th anniversary. But we're going to be talking about Jan Juhalski, the legendary Cream writer. She was going to be our guest today, but she's indisposed. We at Rock's Back Pages send our very best wishes to Jan. She was a, kind of a founding part of the cream scene. She initially started off, I believe, working in subscriptions, and um, then she became absolutely one of their, their great writers. She's a, a Detroit native herself. We've got three pieces on by her on the site this week for free for visitors, including her very first piece, which is marvellous. Which is, She was commissioned by her editor to go to a Smokey Robinson press conference where he's announcing his retirement from the Miracles. And she, she, she wrote it up as a, 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 an open letter to Smokey Robinson. It's fabulous. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's so great. She's saying, you know, how could you leave us like this? Um, yeah. <laughs> she says, Dear Smokey, and maybe you'll go away and never call. Cool, and the taste of honey is worse than none at all poured out of the battered transistor AM radio as two mascara-tiered 15-year-olds keep a constant vigil at the silent phone. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> just... heart... it's brilliant. Whatever heartfelt teenage tragedy I was lamenting over, Smokey, you always made me feel worse, which at 15 was better, because you couldn't really get off on feeling sorry for yourself. Syrupy love poems and true confessions. And she kind of goes on and... She does do fantastic opening paragraphs. She, she? Yeah, she, she's so. absolutely fantastic. Now those awkward, anguishing days are long gone, packed away with V-neck sweaters, ID bracelets and the in-crowd. But I'm feeling sorry for myself again, not for the lost football jock, but because smoke is leaving. And it's, it's, it's
1: just a marvellous, marvellous piece of writing. It's wonderfully original and heartfelt, and clever at the same time. I yeah. really like that combination of like, she really is writing from the heart, but in a way that's funny and self-aware and yeah, just intelligent. It's it's brilliant. I really, yeah. It's really amazing. It. And this
0: was her first, piece and it became a cover story for the magazine. So, I mean, that's a pretty great debut to make, isn't it? (laughs) 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 We've also got a a terrific interview with Susie Quattro. Now, Susie Quattro, of course, is a Detroit girl herself. Her dad, Mike Quattro, I believe, was a real mover and in Detroit pop circles. Jan was uh, sold soda pop at the Grandy Ballroom. There's a very good chance that she'd have come across Susie before, if not face to face, she had almost certainly seen Sousa's early bands playing the, the Detroit rock and roll scene. She also wrote about this Detroit punk band called Death. And it's a really interesting piece because it's it's in that sort of interesting area, interesting area where black rock bands existed but but sort of struggled to sort of have any sort of impact. Black murder being another one, mm. case in point. Um, mm. And this piece is very interesting because it just it, it, a lot of people are now saying that given the right breaks given their choice to change their name because one of the reasons why they weren't signed was because being called death was regarded as a really bad <laughs> marketing <laughs> mechanism um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people are now hailing that stuff their stuff as as sort of you know proto cbg biz sort of American punk Ooh. rock, you know, and also very much a Detroit sound, you know, in, 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 in the lineage of the Stooges and the MC5 and so on and so forth. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a really good piece. But the last piece is, I think, the absolute killer.
1: I dreamed I was on stage with Kiss in my maiden form bra. <laughs> that's
0: that's the one. Um, what she did was she struck a deal in order to kind of do a piece on Kiss. She um, asked Kiss's management if she could actually go on stage with them. And this is just a fantastic report of the whole thing. <laughs> she kind of, you know, be made up by the band in the dressing room. Uh, and, and, yeah. and getting her four minutes on stage. I mean, any particular highlights of this piece, you guys?
2: I really love the bit where she goes She, she goes to the rehearsal just to check that, that <laughs> you know, it's going to happen and to introduce herself to the band. And she says, soon after I arrived, I found some of the band lounging on the side of the stage. So I walked up and asked what they thought of the idea of me being a kiss kissette for a night. <laughs> they looked at me vacantly. And I realised that no one had told them. I felt like a <laughs> rockette who gets told thanks at the open call before she's had a chance to do her dance. <laughs> I I'd fumed at the executive in residence and demanded he explain the plan. I love the executive in residence because it's somebody from the record company, but whoever they were, it didn't matter. Oh. Uh,
1: I like when she actually goes on stage uh-huh. and then doesn't want to get off again. I mean, she's nervous and nervous and nervous about it, and then she's on it, and then she's like, I'm here, and she tries to like take the mic off one of them and, and really gets into it. It's just it's a really wonderfully evocative piece of writing. Again, it, you can really live along with the drama of it. It's just brilliant. It's fantastic stuff.
0: The making up, I think I find her being made up backstage is pretty great. <laughs> By general consensus, Kiss has decided to make me up as a composite of all of them, just like the back cover of the Hotter Than Hell album. Now for the actual transformation. Side straddling the bench, I faced Simmons in his black satin prize fighter robe with Otto Heindl emblazoned on the back. Try not to giggle as English comes out of this Halloween monster thing. It's time to make a little monster. Now watch, so you can do this, he instructs as if he's a counselor for the Elizabeth Arden School of Beauty. <laughs> First, rub Steen's <laughs> clown white all over your face. Smooth it very lightly, only using a little round the eyes. Jean etches Maybelline black on my dry-to-normal skin, sketching his bat bat insignia. Hey, don't make her up just like you, yells Stanley. I'm not, I told you. We each get a crack at her. Ace splotches a silver dot on my nose, and Pete adds his own feline touch in messy black crown. Paul pauses over the conglomeration and draws a smaller version of his star. Funny, somehow, I felt some kind of immunity behind the paint, a little more confidence. Maybe this rock-and-roll business won't be so bad after all. Gene holds up a mirror and stands back, telling me to look at my reflection. Don't you feel special, he inquires. No, silly, I admit. Come on, you look very groupy. I do not, argue, and so it goes on. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's absolutely marvellous. I actually dug out um, the spread to look at today, and it's 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 a, some very very funny photographs in there. But it's, 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 it's wonderful. It's great stuff. Someday we'll have
1: to get Jan on a yeah, podcast definitely. to talk about definitely. this because it's it's so it's yeah, it's some of the best writing of that kind that is it's brilliant.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, she's a pioneering, particularly in the American rock press, a pioneering woman journalist. I mean, there, there have been mm. a handful before, but she's. And she's such a stylish writer. I mean, I I, I think that's the thing that always gets to me. Shall we move on to Buena Vista? Sure. Let's move on to Buena Vista. Right, well, it's the 25th anniversary of Raikuda's Associated Buena Vista Social Club. Um, any of you a particular expert on the subject? No,
2: I kind of was slightly resistant to the whole thing at first. Although I, th- I think I was probably, I don't know why that was. But actually, the, the music is great and it is really interesting. The story of how it happens is really interesting. They're meant to be recording a bunch of African musicians in Cuba uh-huh. who get held up. Or in fact, they never make it. They they uh, stuck at the airport, and so Nick Gold and Rye are down there. They have mm-hmm. the studio booked, and then it you know it, there's there's it's too long to go into now. But they they kind of pull all these people together who haven't been in a recording studio in fifty years, maybe, and it's an extraordinary kind of story really of happenstance and and luck and this amazing recording room at the Eagram Studios, which does sound fantastic as a as a space
1: absolutely and then vin vendors makes a film about it after after the album's recorded it's a yeah. documentary film i've actually never seen the film i've listened to the album since childhood i mean it was sort of a cd that was kind of hanging around because it did have this massive success So i think a lot of people ended up getting it and and yeah I've, i really like the album it has a kind of almost timeless sort of time capsule feel of, about it and an interesting i was reading about it that even you know at the time a lot of cubans wouldn't necessarily have Heard or recognised that music no. as as contemporary or anything like that. So it is kind of just this special little yes, bubble. It's, of... it's like
2: an archaeological dig back into yeah. a, into a bunch of styles that entirely uh, disappeared, yeah. really. And luckily, they found they found great stylists from each area yeah, of yeah, music, yeah. and they'd never often they'd never played together.
0: It's very interesting you say that. I mean, the job of the three pieces we're running, and Nicholas Jennings is a broad overview of the whole project, but Joel Sullivan is actually talking about it and putting it in the context of modern Cuba, very interestingly, that this is music that young Cubans would not have listened to at all, would be almost completely yeah. unaware of. Martin, I was kind of resistant to it when it first came out, but I actually finally got to see the movie. And uh, I think it's the movie which, as much as anything else, really sort of swung me around to it, that is very discreet. You know, his playing on this stuff is yep. very discreet. Mm. It's, not, it's not like a Raikuda record at all. Not at all. And then for, the emergence for me of Ruben Gonzalez was, I think, probably the oh, biggest yeah. thing. Um, the, 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 that introducing Ruben Gonzalez album is my favourite record of all of, of. of those Buena Vista things. Yeah, there is something special about that record.
2: <laughs> The other one I really like is the one he made with the guitarist Manuel Galban called Mambo Sinuendo, which is really the two mm-hmm. of them twanging, playing twanging guitars. Um,
1: yeah, that's a nice record, Which is a really actually. good it's got record. It's got a kind of airplane on the cover, hasn't it? Another, yes, another it, one that, yeah. Actually, uh, I think it, it's
2: the back fin of a Cadillac, but I'm not sure.
1: Oh, okay. Well, as <laughs> it a looks kid, like I a must jet. have thought it was an airplane. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> there's another one that I probably haven't listened to about Fifteen years or longer, and I should go back to it because I have very fond memories of it. But no, yeah, yeah all of those players that kind of emerged from it, Campe Segundo, you know, who's like, I think Joel Selvin in his piece mentions that his first tour in Cuba was in 1938, and then in 1996, yeah. 1997, yeah. he's he's recording in 1999, he still goes on tour. It's like, wow, you know, this kind of uh, yeah. Time travel, almost. It's, it's yeah. great. It's,
0: and they got them just in time because fairly rapidly yeah. after the movie was made, they started dying yeah. off one by one. Yeah. It's also yeah. a, a marvellous sort of second act in their lives. You know, they are all pretty yes. much stopped playing music professionally, hadn't they? In fact, completely retired totally. people.
2: Totally. I don't. I think some of them didn't even have the instruments that they were famed for playing on. So, yeah. you know, incredibly I, kind
0: of. I, I mean, the other thing is that, is that they recorded it beautifully. I mean, it's obviously a, a fairly old havana studio which probably now everyone would look at and say what fabulous vintage gear they have but but it it is it it is fabulous sounding it's it's
1: brilliant
2: brilliant. but they had buckets on the floor because there were holes in the roof i mean it was like (laughs) it was not a really working working studio it was a kind of slightly in mothballs
1: amazing sound. It sounds fabulous. And I think the other thing about it is that it has actually managed to be quite influential into kind of contemporary music. It's been sampled quite a bit and that sound has kind of, I think a lot of people, my generation would recognize Buena Vista Social Club and it kind of Bridges a gap in a way, and and lets people because it's been so well recorded, you can sample it really nicely. Yeah, and it sort of crops up everywhere, and it's it's kind of this, this sort of guiding thread of of that sound that still still persists for me anyway.
2: That's interesting. I n- didn't know any of that.
0: <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, it's sort of it's not just pre salsa. It's almost pre mambo. It's uh, mm. it, it's it's very a lot of the music is very stately. Mm. You know, very little of it's fast, for example. It's the the the, the, the it's it's quite strict
1: tempo stuff. Yeah, it's and still of course, good to dance to though. It's oh, still you can still, you know, it's it's fantastic. You know, it's just grooves really slinky. well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the, you know, kind of in in its historical context, it, basically what mm-hmm. you're listening to is what evolved into mambo. Yes. mambo was, yeah. what was exported to New York in in in, yes. in the 40s and 50s uh, which ultimately evolved into salsa so it's it's it is part of that that extraordinary story but brilliant
2: well we're talking about Raikuda who as you say is very restrained in in the Most of the Cuban recordings, I think, you know, because he thought what was happening was so great that he kind of, rather brilliantly, became a piece of the structure, not a taller kind of soloist. But I went to see him uh, play in Dublin a couple of years ago, after his son Joaquim, who plays on the Buena Vista stuff, had said people want to hear you play guitar, which he didn't think they did. But anyway, as soon as he put a tour together, it sold out instantly. So I couldn't get tickets for (laughs) London. So so I got tickets for. Dublin, where where we went to see him in the National Stadium, which is a purpose-built boxing stadium <laughs> from the 30s. It's the maddest place. Um, apparently, um, Brian Adams, once he saw it, couldn't believe it was a national stadium because he played big, <laughs> He played places with bigger dressing rooms than this. And what was fantastic <laughs> is at the back, because it was a boxing venue and they had no alcohol, at the back was a little uh, kind of a tiny little shop selling of soup. And sweets, and <laughs> <laughs> which presumably, when boxing is on, it's kind of what you want to eat and drink. But uh, but it was it was a slightly surreal experience, and the sound was unbelievably good. You know, who thought you know a concrete boxing ring would actually be a great place to see a band? And it was
1: <laughs> it was a sensational concert, really. So. Joachim gets um There's a. The third piece that we have about Buena Vista is is by Fred Schruers and Rolling Stone in '99, and it Joachim and Rye both get interviewed in that, and that's nice as well because Wacken kind of talks about being. He was quite young when that yeah. happened. You know, I think like 18 or something, and and it being quite like nervous uh but then not being intimidated by by the cuban musicians we sat down to record chan chan and all of a sudden there was the first take and you didn't think about it rice says they're very brotherly and we came in just as players if they pick up on you as a good brother then you are that and i think you know that that actually sums up the vibe of the, the whole session so there is this kind of sure, yeah. you know unforced brotherly kind of, sisterly yeah. kind of unforced feel about the whole thing
0: i mean you know i've sort of been kind of there's, Patches of Raikou's career I've absolutely adored. I mean, Paradise and Lunch around that sort of time, the stuff he did with what's the name of that, the accordion player, the stuff he did with Flaco Jimenez. Flaco Jimenez, uh, 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 and then I don't know. I started. I sort of started losing interest, and he started doing a lot of film soundtrack work. Some of which, like for Vin Vendors, Paris, Texas paris texas was, was was he was huge he's a curious guy to read interviews with because he's quite bad tempered you know he, he <laughs> it's like it's like you know when, when you know uh, when he started doing film music he started complaining that people were watching the movie rather than listening to the music which is you know a, a misunderstanding of, of how about. film music works <laughs> 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 just, yeah. Just 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 a bit. And, and so you often when you read interviews with him, you get this kind of underlying sense of dissatisfaction with his lot, even though he's had, by any account, a fantastic life as a musician, you know. I mean yeah, for years he was bankrupt. Yeah. It, you know, for years Warner Warner Brothers bankrolled him to make records, which not many mm. people bought because they thought it was important artistically for the label to have this stuff on. You know, yeah. He, yeah. He, he's had a pretty lucky life, so but he's he's a bit of a moaner, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think John John
2: Hyatt called him Uncle Grumpy or
0: something. Oh really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh really? dear. Well, I mean, moving from one Los Angeles denizen to another, let's talk about the audio this, this week, um, which is um, Bud Scoper, 2011 interview with Lindsay Buckingham. It's pretty riveting stuff. Let me get my notes up. Here we go. He's just um, re- actually, as it happens, self-released his most recent. What well, is about to self-release his most his, his his most recent studio album, solo album, Seeds We Sow. But on this is very much about Fleetwood Mac. I mean, in, in a way, he says that his that Tusk is the sort of the key thing is that he regards Tusk as almost the start of his solo career, and he talks about not wanting Tusk to be rumours too, and he talks extensively about rumours and about what the whole dynamic that went into them being. In, well, being in the same room as these marriages and partnerships breaking up, the difficulty yeah. of seeing his ex uh, you know, every day, Stevie Nicks. And, li- and also he was starting to listen to a lot of new wave music, you know, what he would call new wave music, though he himself is very cautious about that particular term, whether from Britain or America. Let's listen to his first clip. This is on Tusk.
3: Irony of Tusk was that I did engage the band in the process and in the idea of that, and what what broke that sense that spell or what they weren't engaged in was the commercial outcome. Yeah, and it's not that it didn't sell; it sold four or five million albums, and it was a double album. But because it did not stand up to the previous. Thing there was this edict that came down, and we've probably talked about this before. And yeah. it where where basically they said, well, we're going to go back to something a little more to the right. And had there not been that reaction from the rest of the band, I probably would never have started making solo albums because there would never have been a need for the outlet, you know, for the left side of the palette, which was yeah. there for me. Yeah. and I don't begrudge them at all that yeah. that uh, reaction. I mean, there's certainly more than one way to look at what all of that was about i mean i look at it in a certain way i think at the time they probably just saw me as a troublemaker i'm sure the record company did too oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> I, think I remember that yes <laughs> what's he doing he's fucking with the point yes i mean i would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they put that, that, that album on in the book <laughs> <you know? laughs> what was that we just heard
0: I love that. I mean, this, 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 it wanted to be a fly on the wall of the boardroom when uh, the executives <laughs> first heard it. I mean, you know, Tusk was a pretty brave thing for a band like Fleetwood Mac to do. Totally. It still
2: sounds kind of sweet, generous, really. It's not. There's tracks on it that are not like most other Pop albums at that time were rock albums
0: mm. yeah no, no absolutely i myself was slightly baffled by it did i really listen to it at the time i'm not sure i really did I, i'm not many people i knew were listening to fleetwood Mac records by 1980 you know um <laughs> 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 he goes on about well, his solo album and about his fondness for brian jones era rolling stones and forming his own music at this particular point in time, discovering new music, uh, his current lifestyle and relationships, which I'll go on to in a moment, songwriting and lyrics, usual stuff that musicians talk about in interviews. Um, <laughs> and then he goes on, he goes kind of returns to the, because he he's, has been touring intermittently with Fleet Mac and whilst having a solo career. He sort of go, goes into that aspect. So let's listen to the next clip, which is pretty much about that.
3: i i it, it's funny because I, I get to this point now where all all these choices seem to add up to something that a little more tangible where I feel like they were not not bad choices that I made if not popular at the time uh I, I feel like my street cred is is better than it's ever been, but you know yeah. the 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 other side of that is that I'm well aware that that does not translate to marketability yeah uh, nor should it necessarily yeah but you know that's that's the nature of the solo beast for me, and and to some degree it always has been. It's just uh, easier to come to terms with, with what it is and what it isn't at this point, you know. And then be, be completely happy to go out and rest on my laurels with Fleetwood Mac for a while too, yeah. because there's there's something to be said for that too. And and if you do that properly, you know that's that can that has its its own uh, credibility and it, it, its own sense of. Uh, uh it's, its own code to it and there's a, there's a kind of a story that that is still evolving with that band if you, if that's possible after all these years. With so, Stevie and me and yeah, my god yeah, you know we're yeah. getting along better than ever.
0: Yeah. Eh? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now this 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 is really worth following up on. Just this year. Well let, let's let's go back a bit. 2018 he's sacked by Fleetwood Mac. 2019 he has an emergency heart bypass operation. Twenty twenty, he's, he's divorced by his wife, who he talks about in this in this interview in you know, fond relationship terms. And in twenty twenty-one, he gives an interview, I forget which magazine he gave it to, blaming Stevie Nicks for him being fired by Fleetwood Mac and, and saying all kinds of horrible things about her, like, you know, basically she's a spinster who hasn't had any children and shit like that. You know. He's weirdly obsessed still Hmm. Stevie Nicks in some sort of peculiar way. I mean, that's what sort of strikes me. And he's also kind of got this really curious, kind of bitter attitude towards her and also towards the band.
1: Very, very strange man. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, because he's also releasing this new solo album this year his first since since the one that he's talking about in this interview yeah yeah and it's it's called it's called lindsey buckingham so it's sort of your seventh solo album <laughs> you're naming after yourself just kind of <laughs> and tickles first. Me. It, i think comes out tomorrow i mean so it will have come out by the time this podcast is out but yeah it's it's a funny funny sort of thing because he, he does he is kind of enthusiastic about about Fleetwood Mac again in this interview, and and about Stevie Nicks, and uh, it's odd that it fell apart again, given that he seems relatively mature in this interview about <laughs> about that whole situation. Looking back, right? Well, he,
0: he does, but he. It's interesting how he keeps referring back, particularly to Stevie Nicks in this interview. Mm. You know, yes, he's 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 sounding steady and mature and rational, but I get the feeling that she still occupies a huge chunk of his headspace. Yeah, so and
2: it just comes out at the end as a kind of passive-aggressive thing that's particularly weird for people at this age, still going through.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a bit odd. A bit odd. (laughs) There you go.
0: Um, we're going to be at the end of the podcast. We're going to be playing a really good clip actually about exactly what we've been talking about really but about rumours about the making of rumours which which is which is which is great fun it's
1: it's 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 a it's it's very interesting interview I mean it is interesting it's quite pleasant to listen to as well because there's kind of like bird song in the background and it's been well (laughs) recorded and it it kind of you you can get into a whole sort of vibe of 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 the situation that they're in it's a nice (laughs) one
2: mindfulness with Lindsay Buckingham
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Bud has interviewed him before, you know. There's a, a, and Bud is a very much a kind of Los Angeles figure. He was the, one of the editors on Hits magazine, and so on and so forth. So, so the, there's a sort of easy degree of familiarity between the two of them, which you know, eases the process. But. No, it's, it's all it's all good stuff. Shall we have a look at what's
1: new in the library? Mm. Let's have a look at what's new in the library, Mark. What what are your highlights for this week? <laughs> well, last week. And last week, indeed, indeed. indeed. Apologies.
0: Well first, first things first. Maureen O'Gradian Rave interviewing Keith Moon from The Who in sixty-five. And he talks about their relationships with one another. And he says, I could say that we really have absolutely nothing in common whatsoever, apart from music. We are so different. And I think that's, that's patently true throughout the, the Who's entire career. You know, they, they were four individuals who really didn't like each other very much. He says, <laughs> "Now our new record is out. My Generation, written by Peter. He always refers to Pete Townsend as Peter. Written by Peter, all about the mod kids and people he knows." This next piece this is from '66. This is this is great. Robert Shelton has regular listeners will know is a recent signing to rock's back Pages. Dead, but um, you know, via his family. Terrific writer for the New York Times about primarily about folk initially. But Robert Shelton had really appreciates folk rock. He's got really no problem with folk musicians plugging in. We talked about that a bit his about Bob Dylan and the last podcast at Forest Hills. He had written a piece in the New York Times raving about it. And Sing Out, editor, Sing Out was the establishment folk magazine in America. Sing Out, editor, Erwin Silber, wrote a ferocious letter. Oh, so s- s- Slamming Shelton for being a, a, an apostate, and, you know. <laughs> yes. um, um, and he said, Your folk music critic may proclaim his fealty to the avant-garde, but he is, in fact, standing guard at the money changer's door. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's Absolutely fantastic! <laughs> so then, Robert Shelton wrote. A, Robert Shelton wrote a reply, and Tentoff, you know, jazz critic, among other things, also wrote a reply. Yeah. As did Paul Nelson, who, in those days, was uh, um, a fanzine editor. Went on to write for Rolling Stone and many others, all of whom uh, pro Shelton. Matt Tentoff, Paul Nelson, they completely great for Shelton. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is 1966, so I mean, this is the last squeak of the folk purists. I mean... yeah,
3: Yes,
2: uh, by this point, like a Rolling Stones happened, so it's kind of... Well,
0: absolutely. It's 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 very funny. I love that standing guard at the <laughs> money. Uh, nothing
2: worse than a scorned folky.
0: Nothing worse than a <laughs> scorned folky.
2: Hell hath no fury. Hell yes. hath no fury.
0: Uh, Record Mirror 68. Lon Goddard, who's a Facebook friend, valuable part of the Roxback Pages fraternity, interviewing Sly Stone. Sly says, I think the Beatles are dropping a a lot in popularity anyway. Not that I don't like them. They're still Britain's best export. (laughs) That sounds more like the hand of Lon Goddard than the voice of Sly Stone. (laughs) But I I could be wrong, and Lon, I'm sure, will let me know one way or the other. (laughs) Nineteen seventy, melody maker Leonard Cohen to Roy Hollingworth. I could never really describe myself. If I looked at myself in the third person, I don't think I'd recognize what I saw. And he says, "You know what the greatest thing would be be to play a concert in front of fifty thousand middle aged people." <laughs> I think he got his
2: wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely,
1: well, I mean, it's funny because he's he's young at this point, right? He's yeah. in his twenties, and he's, he's longing no, to he's play. For... Than that. No, he's older. Okay, older than that. He, he, okay. but he, but... Yeah. Basically, he doesn't like being sort of yelled at, I think. He wants he wants a sedate this audience. Is,
0: you did not want people shouting <laughs> boogie at him. No. <laughs> I doubt he got me. of those. 1971, Burt Bacharach playing the Cow Palace in San Francisco, or Baby City, San Francisco. Now, Cow Palace is a vast venue. And Burt Bacharach managed to get, Elwood thinks, about 6,000 people in there. This is Burt Bacharach, you know. We... I don't think in this country, certainly back then, had any sense of him as a solo performer. He was just the guy who wrote songs for Dionne Warwick. But uh, Elwood really doesn't like this concert at all. He says, so many of the melodies, so much of the orchestration and such a large amount of the changes fall into similar or overlapping patterns that by the set's conclusion, every number begins to sound like a medley of the others. (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
2: Actually, I just just spent yesterday listening to... A kind of playlist of Dion Warwick covers, but, you know, it sings Burt Bacharach. Yeah. And of course, I hadn't realised that so many of them – I mean, I knew that Cilla Black and other English singers, Dusty, had had covered his songs, but it's very interesting to hear the original – usually it was Dion Warwick – is actually they're quite plainly done, in a, in a way, compared to their kind of big gushy versions you normally hear of them. Sure. Dion Warwick's original takes on Bacharach are really Really, although that's not to say that Elwood's wrong it, it is true that there are there are tropes And you, you keep hearing a similar kind of build-up to certain things But interesting to go back to the first recordings of background songs mm, they're, not, yeah. they're not as blousy
0: If you see me walking down the street And I start to cry Each time we meet Walk on by I think Philip Elwood at this thing, he said, you know, he he had a fairly big orchestra with him. He had uh, multiple backing singers and so on and so forth. And Elwood's basically a jazz fan who then fell in love with like San Francisco rock and so on and so forth. uh, And I, I think he'd just regard this as over the populist over sort of yeah. easy listening sort of stuff you know and i suspect that that would have gotten the way of i would actually kind of really appreciating the songwriting and so on and so forth yeah I, I, yeah i don't know
2: also in in a kind of rock gig i mean that's about i always think of like the cow palace in terms of quicksilver messenger service oh yeah so, i mean that's what it was that kind of gig wasn't it and it's, well, it's weird it's, it's- that
0: it's a huge building have you ever seen it Actually have no, seen it no. it's, a, it's, it's very it's on the drive to the airport from san francisco it's 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 on the left it 's this massive barn and people like Jackie Wilson used to sell it out there'd be big r and b shows in the early yeah. mid sixties yes it was you know, yes, white rock and roll bands played there. Credence Clearwater revival, right. revival played there yes. a few times. But it wasn't like part of the Winterland Fillmore no. circuit. Um, um, Burt
2: Bacharach seems an odd, I mean, a bit like the Beach Boys playing the, great, playing the Fillmore with the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's one of those slightly <laughs> what
0: moments. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to 1980, Trouser Press. Um, Jim Sullivan interviewing Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel had just released his third solo album, which was one which had Biko on it, and I think Games Without Frontiers. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's certainly Biko was on it. And actually, Peter Gabriel was genuinely interesting at that particular point. You know, I mean, if you think about Phil Collins in the, in, in the air tonight, that's Phil Collins channeling Peter Gabriel's production because Peter Gabriel famously refused to let Phil Collins use symbols on the stuff they were doing, <laughs> um, which, which is... Actually, yeah. you know, fantastic. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not a big, big fan. Certainly, was never a Genesis fan, but I did appreciate what Peter Gable was doing around this time. And he's just saying, he says this. He says progressive used to mean people who are exploring music, and it came to mean people who used a lot of keyboards.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is a very concise way of yeah. uh, explaining yeah. how prog yeah. became I, prog. I, I absolutely love that. Well, also everything that went, went wrong with prog. You know, yes. uh, 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 and Although I would contend it wasn't just keyboard players, it was also guitar players trying to sound like keyboards and going, widdly, 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 widdly. Uh, well, no, no, no.
0: I, I do disagree with you there, Jasper. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for me, like the moment Yes went wrong was when Rick Waitman joined. Even though I have a yeah, lot of sure. time for Rick Waitman. I mean, he did marvellous stuff with David Bowie and yeah, so on and yeah. so forth. But give that guy a chance to use a million keyboards. And then, of course, Keith Emerson, no, Emerson, Lake, and sure. Palmer. You no, know, sure. And Emerson, Lake, and Palmer are the defining awful prog band. <laughs> yes, but weirdly, someone told me a story of,
2: of Keith Emerson going to play some pianos at the Steinway showroom to, yeah. to choose one, and the, the Steinway guy there reported to a, a record mirror a reporter or something that, that he'd never heard anyone play as well as Keith Emerson did. He oh. had the best touch, you know. Funny because oh. I I just see him sticking a knife in a hammond, but you know. <laughs> he look
0: that the two things they don't preclude each other. No, no, I, absolutely. <laughs> There's a taste question involved too. Yeah, there yeah, is, there absolutely. is. August '83, Melody Maker, our very first mention of the Smiths in on Rock's Back Pages. They are bottom of the bill, supporting SPK and topping the bill, Hard Devoto, Lyceum. And it sounds miserable. You know, he hates, Sweeting hates how Devoto has no interest in SPK. He says, The Smiths were in flight as I arrived, warbling into the gloom as though the indifferent crowd somehow owed them something. Thrumming and strumming like the farmer's boys with cow dung spilling into their waders, the Smiths remained obstinately and depressingly earthbound. I headed for the scrum at the bar." So that that is our very first mention of the Smiths on Rock's back pages. So I think it's almost there's a circularity there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, very first very first thing. This is John Harris interviewing Radiohead, Melody Maker. Even though John Harris went on to write the enemy, this is Melody Maker, and I think he wrote it when he's still a student at Oxford, and Radiohead had just changed their name from was it on a Thursday or some ghastly thing like on that? on a Friday on a Friday. <laughs> Thursday, Friday, whenever, uh, and they've just—they've they're, they're just having their, their first EP is about to be released on Parlophone. Johnny Greenwood says, "I really hate the idea of radio waves being inescapable. Wherever you go, they're going through you. It's horrible, radio <laughs> waves." It'll probably be 5G now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you need to Tom, ask him. <laughs> Tom York says, all our songs come from a state of conflict. And if, if you listen to them in the right way, you're bound to feel that conflict as well. He also says, and this is interesting, he says, smells like teen spirit, had the kind of feel we're after. When it came on the radio, you had no choice but to listen to it. I, mean, I kind of mm. like the idea of Tom York as a grunge fan.
1: Mm. I can actually see yeah, that in like- a way, that that, that there's a... Not that they sound the same, but that there's a kind of edge of you know when when Radiohead are good, there is a there's an edge to it as well. Do you like Radiohead, Jasper? I'm not. A, I mean, there's some of it I like. I'm not. I wouldn't say that I'm a fan. I but I can appreciate you know some chunks of it. And I I don't know. I, n- I never really got into them when they were at their at the height of their powers. But since then, I've listened to them. I think mostly because I like johnny greenwood's film stuff i kind of thought oh i'll, I'll give this another listen and, and i found stuff that i did actually yeah, yeah. like
0: interesting i mean i johnny greenwood's what i like about that band
1: sonically mm. i think he's everything that's interesting really stems from
0: him and tom york is what i least like about this band <laughs> um his pain you know i'm really not interested in tom york's pain frankly his conflict you can fuck off you know but <laughs> but, but 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 yeah johnny... you heard
1: it here first tom
0: <laughs> right well this week This week has got some really good stuff. First of all, an uncredited review of Aretha Franklin's first Atlantic album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. This is from July 67, Record Mirror. And it says, it's taken time for Miss Franklin to break through here, though her reputation has been boosted by such as Dee Springfield. But this (laughs) satisfying set underlines her excellent piano playing too. And most of the arrangements stemmed from Aretha just sitting and playing and singing, the horns and vocal answers coming in later, all part of a seemingly natural development. Incidentally, Aretha had a hand in writing several of the tracks. Now, that's really interesting because this writer had heard, I don't know how, about how that, that album was made. and mm. it, it was very much Aretha sitting at the piano, running through the songs and, and basically the arrangement stemming from that. I don't think that was widely known. No, time. no, that's quite, that seems quite a thoughtful take on, on it that early. Yeah, I, I think so. It's a really good review. I mean, she, the, the, the review does imply... Um, that finds her singing sometimes a bit over the top. He's wrong. Well,
1: I couldn't agree it. more. But one it's one of those uh, objective wrongnesses uh, in, in, no, in It's just wrong,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, as Richard Williams would say. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> next piece is actually something that martin and i will want to talk about at a little length it's, it's paul, butterfield's, <laughs> paul butterfield's better day is the elvin mission group and mike bloomfield playing Winterland. i'm strapping myself in playing winterland <laughs> in san francisco again <laughs> philip elwood in the san francisco examiner february 73 and he says jeff maldeur for instance is a gorgeous singer please send me someone to love couldn't have been mellower. his slide guitar and funky piano are equally strong Billy Rich's bass lines transcend blues and jazz, adding quite unusual foundation harmonies that span the whole ensemble's sound. Amos Garrett's lead guitar has firmness, definition, inspiration, and some good old-style pop guitar sounds. And Butter, well, it's great to hear his harp again, especially in such an unusual group. Now, Martin and I, pretty early on, adopted Amos Garrett as a guitar <laughs> hero. He, he was on in Paul Butterfield's Better Days. He made albums with... Jeff Mulder, most of you out there who aren't aficionados of all things Amos Garrett will be familiar with him for his solo on Miriam Mulder's Midnight at the Oasis, which was a big hit. And uh, it's through Martin, basically. That, um, but Martin, had uh, you had this Paul Butterfield Best Days double album with this fabulous cover. Yes, uh, which Milton Glaser. That's right. With was a photograph of a harmonica making like a bit of Victorian furniture. It's absolutely fantastic. And that song, Please Send Me Someone Someone to Love, is 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 astonishing. What's the great track on Jeff Mulder's Jeff Mulder's Having a Wonderful Time album Amos Garrett's great solo is on? Ah, uh, he
2: plays a great solo on G Baby Ain't no good to you. That,
0: that's right. Just just yeah. sensational. Not many people know about Amos. I mean No, it's it's
2: really odd. I when I was a i just left school, I think, mm-hmm. and and Maria Mulder came to play a week at Ronnie Scott's, and yep. I spent the entire week ringing Barbara Sharone in the Warner Brothers press office trying <laughs> to get an interview with Amos Garrett. I don't know why. I'd never written about music in any major way. I just desperately wanted to, and I became a real pain in the ass, and I never got. To meet Amos Garrett, but, really... but that 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 set at Ronnie Scott's. I mean, she, she had a band that was James Jamieson on bass, That's right? <laughs> yeah. Amazing Am- Amos Garrett on guitar. I mean, staggering, staggering. I can't yeah. remember who else was in it, but it was like, oh, you know, I yeah. wish, I so wish I'd seen that. that. But, but Amos' whole approach was a kind of, I don't even know how you pin it down. It's not, I, but how would you describe well, the way he it... approaches, for instance, a solo.
0: Well, it's, 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 it's very it's, it's very hard to um, um My friend Martin Stone, the guitar player from Chilin and Red Hot Peppers, went along to those nights and he buttonholed Amos Garrett and, and said to Amos, uh, you, you listen to a little Les Paul, don't you? And Amos denied this flat out tonight. <laughs> but you, but <laughs> actually... I I can hear Les Uh, Paul in in his playing. It's got a sort of jazzy touch with a country twang simultaneously. But then his his melodic sense is extraordinary. So he surprises you all the time by going to intervals and places you don't expect him to go to.
2: He's a very good trombone player, too. And I don't know whether that you, you know, it's like Rick Danko could play the tu- was a tuba player in school, yeah, yeah. And if you listen to some of Danko's work, apart from the James Jameson influence uh, and his own unique stuff, there's, there's a tuba esque thing to certain <laughs> band songs. And I think Amos Gang had that thing of kind of there's a lot of kind of low notes in his rhythm playing behind sure. the track, uh, which are really interesting. He's yeah. just a unique player.
0: I mean, I, I just can't recommend it more. Please send me someone, someone to love by Paul Butterfield's Better Days. Yeah. Gee, baby, I'm uh, good to you. Jeff Mulder. Midnight Oasis, Maria Mulder.
2: And if you can find Georgia On My Mind from the Jeff and Maria album, Pottery Pies. that apparently at one point, Robbie Robertson had that on repeat, the solo in Georgia On know. My Mind, around yeah, just, the time that they were all working together on Bobby Charles'
0: record. I mean, I am to oh, say... Bobby Charles, Tennessee Blues. Well of course of course I mean yeah. he's, he's on he's on a bunch of Martin and Miles favorite records and I'd say absolutely one of my favorite guitar players of all time great great guy nice <laughs> 1974, Michael Watts interviewing Jackson Brown. We had Jennifer Osk Bickerdike on the podcast talking about her Nico book recently. And so Jackson Brown says, Why the stuff about Nico? Before this year, no one had even heard of what I did with her. <laughs> He's, a lot of interviews about his time in New York says, for one thing, I was always scared to death of Lou Reed, you know. He was really heavy, I thought. <laughs>
2: uh, it's so funny, you never picture Jackson Brown
0: being in New York
2: at the time yeah. of the Velvet Underground. I mean, it's so, such a kind of strange, and, and being when I mean, he like was so young at
1: that time. Yeah, he was, he was like a kid. Yeah. slimy.
2: He had to escape to Laurel Canyon.
0: Right. My old friend Cahill Coughlin from Microdisney to Paul Mather, Enemy 84. He says, I may be an alcoholic by the time I'm 30, but at least I'll be a far more interesting person than George Michael. <laughs> uh, I love you, Cahill, but, you know... I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, <laughs> he may not be. Ninety-two. Kurt Cobain, Stephen Shirazi. This is a really interesting piece for Kerrang. We we always think of Kerrang as a metal magazine. They were very early adopters of grunge. They wrote good about grunge. They were, exactly. They wrote about. In fact, Kerrang is a much more interesting magazine. than most it, A lot of people think of it because a lot of people dismiss it simply as a as, as a metal mm-hmm. paper. And, and Stephen Shirazi is a terrific writer, consistently yeah. good. He interviews Kurt Cobain. Cobain says sexism is the top of all the isms, as far as I'm concerned, because man dominates and controls everything, which is great. I mean, mm. the, the, Kurt was well known for his, his his belief in women's equality and so on and so forth. And he liked, you know, women artists. He he was a promoter. He promoted the raincoats when they were long gone, mm. obscurity. You know, he's a pretty right on guy. Was old Kurt. And lastly, David Sinclair reviewing Pulp, Different Class, to The Times, 27 October ninety five. Cocker emerges as a shrewd, if somewhat world-weary commentator, with a playwright's ear for words, while the band supplies a suitably dramatic, eccentric, and at times even epic musical backdrop. Love it or loathe that Different Class is in a class of its own, and Pulp's reputation as pop's ranking outsiders remains gloriously intact. Well, right, I would agree of every... Mm. Every word of that. Totally. Totally. I, Pulp, but the only Brit pop era band that I actually really genuinely adored, you know, and I think Jarvis mm. Cocker's a, a, a national treasure. Mm. True.
1: But what have you got for us? I've got a couple of things. First of which is a piece by a new writer who we've just signed up. One of a few writers we're getting on board who wrote for the now defunct Stylus magazine, which was a kind of early internet mag, kind of came up at the same similar time as, as Pitchfork, but hasn't lasted as long. I think it went, went under in 2007. Mm-hmm. But we're getting a few writers on board from there. And one of them is Alfred Soto. And so this is a piece, a review of the Killers album, Sam's Town, by Alfred Soto. And it's a really interesting piece of writing. Romantic tropes, as Byron and Kate Bush understood, are useful simulacra for coitus. If Flowers (laughs) has had sex since the release of Hot Fuss, Sam's Town is a woeful advertisement. It doesn't help that Flowers sings his big numbers like a soccer ball had winded him a minute before opening his mouth. A damn shame, (laughs) since a pip of a tune like All the Things That I've Done showed what a singer whose emotional range compensated for a limited physical range can do. In a touching display of solidarity with their leader's hysterics, the band insert awful fills and accelerate the tempos on sex jive like Bones and The River is Wild. It's not that Flowers writes songs that he's physically incapable of singing. He writes songs that no one wants to sing, <laughs> which is just wonderfully savage. And the, the, the piece kind of continues along that vein. I, it's great stuff.
0: Have you, do you, have, you ever listen, have you ever listened to that record,
1: To, to The Killers? Not that record, no. no.
0: Uh, I mean, I, just, I think they're just dreadful. I never understood everyone's, you know, their <laughs> approbation. They're such a reactionary mob of sort of, like, you yeah, know, basically 70s rock and roll revivalists.
1: Yeah, I I yeah. don't know. I mean, there, there's that one song, Mr. Brightside, Mr. Brightside that Brightside, has, has yeah. become like this anthem for, I don't know. I, I don't really know why either, to be honest. <laughs> <For what? laughs> I don't know. Like, it's the kind of thing that people play at the end of parties and then mm. get all emotional about it. I, I have to anyway, say, that, I don't quite get that, it, but... That was a very good bit of writing though. Yeah. It was <laughs> fantastic. Soto. It,
0: Mr Soto is a useful new addition so, Very that. pleased <laughs> to
1: have him on board, and hopefully he's equally scathing about, about a bunch of a things because of other things Next up is Will Hermes, Rolling Stone, writing about Blood Orange's album from that year. This is 2018. Mm -hmm. If you haven't listened to it, I really like this album. It's called N-Word Swan. It's a really interesting album. It has a lot of collaborators and a really strong narrative thread. But the collaborators Will Hermes writes about, one of them is P. Diddy. He says, It's a bit off-brand for P. Diddy, but Heinz seems to inspire collaborators to channel their highest selves, an embodiment of the cover image of an elegant black angel sideshowing Oakland style from a car window. The world could use more artists like Heinz, especially now, Heinz being Blood Orange. I mean, Blood Orange and Alderigo for Dev Heinz. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, in a way, the age of streaming is also the age of mega collaborators, right? You have all these, you know, big hits being made by kind of, in a way, unlikely collaborators in a way that wouldn't have happened previously. I think we've talked about this before. But Blood Orange on this album manages to combine a whole bunch of people while keeping a very strong sense of cohesion and sense of self within that and i think that's a real talent and a, and a really important thing to be able to make something like this and it's not always the case often you'll see like the featured artist either goes under is lost in the track or mm-hmm. dominates the track and there's you know good collaborations require input from both sides and i think you know he really pulls it off on this album
0: Interesting. Will Hermes is a writer I have a great deal of time for. I mean, he's written one of my absolute favourite books about music called Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, Five Years in New York That Changed Music Forever, which is about sort of the late 70s, early 80s, kind of punk scene, but also hip hop. But crucially, he also writes about salsa, which is often ignored by historians of New York music of
1: that period. Mm. Um, It's a really, really good book. I can't recommend it more highly. Mm. Great. (laughs) Lastly... Uh, Rock's Most Dangerous Band, Why Rammstein's Incendiary Retelling of History Terrifies (laughs) Germany by Ian Winwood in the Daily Telegraph in July 2019. Now, it's a slightly sort of pearl-clutching article about Rammstein um, in the sense that, you know, they've they've just, I think, made this video about, you know, kind of retelling of German history. And the thing about Rammstein is that they are actually pretty left-leaning in contrast to a number of heavy metal Mm -hmm. bands that one can think of. And in a way, they're pretty astute. I mean, they do have this flair for bombast and stuff, but Ian Winwood is kind of making out that like people are, are kind of appalled <laughs> about them. But I, I think most Germans recognize their sense of humor. I mean, their, their lyrics are very funny and at times a little bit challenging, but... but- <laughs> Broadly speaking, funny, right? But the other thing that he, he writes about is their, is their stage show. As Ramstein's popularity exploded, so too did their stage show, literally. As the band marched into arenas and then into stadiums, their onstage carry-on expanded to include fire-shooting face masks, flamethrowers, projectile <coughs> pyrotechnics, and the kind of fireworks seen in a megacity on New Year's Eve. During Mein Teil, Lorenz plays keyboards inside a giant pot consumed by flames not to be upstaged till Lindemann can often be seen singing while entirely on fire. and Which brings us back to Kiss, basically. But <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, you have to understand that 99% of the people don't understand the lyrics, so you have to come up with something to keep the drama in the show, said Richard Krosper, one of the band's guitarists. It's great. I and mean, it's what's odd about the article, and I suppose it might be because it's in the Daily Telegraph, is that It does talk about their political leanings a little bit and critical stance towards Germany, which is, you know, entirely appropriate. But it's fairly uncritical of the analog that is drawn, Iron Maiden, using Churchill's speech to to, to walk on stage to. It's it's sort of odd that, that on the one hand they're saying, well, you know it must be difficult for a German band to engage with the history while kind of going, hurrah, Iron Maiden quote Churchill. <laughs> yeah. It's just like <laughs> yeah. what? How, well, do you, how do you not manage to see the, the slight duality? Anyway, of the English <laughs> media. I just thought that was funny. So that's my lot.
0: That's your lot. Well, that's splendid. Um, We're going to be going out listening to Lindsay Buckingham talking about rumours and having to bump into
1: Stevie Nicks every morning in the studio.
0: Do we know who is the guest in a fortnight's time, Jasper?
1: I think it's Miles Marshall Lewis Ah, to talk about Kendrick Lamar, which I'm very much looking forward to.
0: Right, well, th- that sounds fabulous, and Barney will be back in the hot seat as well. I may I go have a lie down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off I'm to
2: watch Rammstein videos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, on that happy note, I think we'll say goodbye.
1: Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
3: The album's called Rumors. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and uh, and there are songs on it that that just beg to be dissected in terms of a uh, personal relationship. Yeah, but none of that was a choice. That was All of that was just an outgrowth of the fact that we were this strange group of, of, of people who functioned through chemistry. And uh, the fact that, that we were also two couples who had broken up. And, yeah. and the fact that... Uh, you know, while we were making rumors, I had to see Stevie every day and never really got a chance to get any closure and still had to try to make the right choices to do the right thing for her and, in a, in some ironic sense, help her to move away. And, yeah. Uh, That's a Zen riddle. <laughs> it is. It sure is. And uh, we, we were so aware, because that first album had also done very well, that there was this calling, this destiny that we needed to fulfill and that... Uh, what was going on with one's personal life was secondary to that calling, and and we did uh, stand up and and, and try to fulfil that calling.
1: That was Lindsay Buckingham in conversation with Bud Scoper in 2011, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Mark Pringle and Martin Collier and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.